0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Uh, If you have no idea who I am... Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's good reason. I've been gone for four months. My name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest. And I want to start by saying thank you to our whole church for granting me a sabbatical. And uh, I felt like I was in a place where I desperately needed to step away from things. And I'm so thankful to our, our leadership, to our staff, to the whole congregation for freeing me up to have that rest. I spent the first two months, I feel like, on the long exhale, and then the last two months was like a really long inhale. And uh, I feel really refreshed, I feel closer to God than I felt in a long time, and I feel really grateful for some of the clarity that God gave me as I had that time alone, to see myself honestly, and to think about what lies ahead for me in my life, and how I want to finish this journey on earth. So thank you. It was uh, such a gift. I kept thinking during the sabbatical, I wish every person at our church could get a sabbatical. Um, and I, I hope that in some way, shape, or form, something like that will be given to you at some point in your life. I want to thank our staff and leaders for just loving the church and doing such a great job while I was away. I know that I needed a break from ministry, but I also know that the church needs a break from me from time to time. And so I hope that was refreshing to see God at work through so many different people who stepped up and, and just served and honored God and you. I'm coming back really refreshed and uh, more committed than ever to my ministry at Harvest. And I got to see a lot of really cool things, which I think would, it would exhaust me to talk about all at once. But over the course of time, I hope to share some of the things that I, I really feel like God has shown me. One thing I want to share with you this morning, and by the way, Tim Zolker from um, Rhode Island was scheduled to preach for us this morning, and he, he got sick on Thursday, and so he's no longer able to come. And so I was not supposed to be preaching today, but by God's grace, here we are. And so I thought I'd share what was really heavy and on top of my heart as I exited the sabbatical, because the summer marked the 50th anniversary of my family's immigration to the United States. In the summer of 1973, my parents packed me and my brother up, and I was five and a half, my brother was three at the time, and we moved to the US. Had no idea what was happening that day. It was the most confusing day of my whole life. We lived in Beaverton, Oregon for the first year in the US because my father was a surgical intern at at St. Vincent Hospital there. And we didn't stay long, but we formed some of our first memories of the United States in Oregon, of all places. That was before Nike was even a thing. Uh, And we we live in Beaverton. So this year, as we closed out my sabbatical, we decided to make a trip back to Beaverton, Oregon, Uh, Jeannie and me, and my brother and his wife, and my parents. And we went to visit some of our old haunts. Um, Here's a picture of us standing in front of our very first apartment, it was really weird to see the tree out front and have memories of the shape of that tree. It's way, way huger now. Uh, this is a picture of us in front of the hospital where my dad worked that first year. And uh, that's the original building, but standing behind it is a massive sprawling medical complex. It's, it is now a full medical campus and it was pretty amazing for my dad to see how that little hospital had grown into this huge thing over 50 years. So we had a chance to see the places that made a deep mark on us when we first came to the US. But what was also great is we rented a house just west of the city, and uh, we we got to do a lot of, of sitting together and just talking about memories and the faithfulness of God and expressing gratitude for the journey our family has been on. It hasn't been a perfect journey. We've had a lot of bumps along the road, But when we look back, we can very clearly see that through all the ups and downs, God was in our story. We also remarked throughout the trip, I haven't spent one solid week with my parents in decades. Just, you know, nonstop, day and night. Uh, Maybe it's the same for you if you're an adult. But um, being around my parents that much, we realized with a laugh how many of our character traits we had inherited even our little quirky things, strange little things, we're just looking at our parents thinking, man, my brother and I was saying, we have inherited so much, more than we acknowledge, from our parents. That's led us to think a lot about inheritance, and I'm not talking about the money we will receive from them when they pass away, but the inheritance that is maybe deeper than that. I recently saw a video um, on Instagram When you're on sabbatical, you get to spend a little more time on Instagram than when you're working. And I saw a conversation between Steve Harvey and Reverend T.D. Jakes. Uh, One's an entertainer and one's a charismatic preacher. And they were talking about their inheritance that they're going to leave for their kids. And Steve Harvey said, I'm spending almost all my money on me and my wife. My kids will get a little bit because it's not for you. (laughs) And Reverend Jake stepped in and said something that I thought was really profound. Uh, It's kind of self-evident, but it's also really profound. He said, it's not what you leave to them that makes them great. It's what you leave in them. And I think that summarizes a lot of what we were feeling, because I have no idea what sort of financial inheritance I stand to receive from my parents. I don't even like thinking about that. But on this trip, we came face-to-face with the incredible deposit of deeper, richer things, which our folks had left in us. And that got me to reflecting on what my own children are gonna end up inheriting from me and my wife, and how beautiful a thing it can be, but also how full of pain and regret it can be. And so I wanted to offer some words of encouragement and guidance to help us who are parents, and to help those who are children live out this beautiful pattern for flourishing families which God has designed. I think the story of the prodigal son is uh, a great reminder that when someone receives wealth without character or wisdom, it's not actually a blessing. Uh, It's actually a curse. And so though we will work hard, and Proverbs 13.22 very clearly affirms the goodness of leaving a financial inheritance for the next generation, I don't don't think there's anything wrong with that, really. Um, I don't think we should try to make our children very, very wealthy with unearned money, but I think it's okay to leave something for our kids. But the prodigal son story reminds me that the greatest thing we leave behind is a real and genuine faith and a character that is sincere and runs deep. Resilience, those intangible things which cannot be bought but which are so precious And the truth is, if we receive them or don't receive them, so much of that happens in the relationship in family between us and parents. So if you're a a parent or a child, I, I hope that this will be encouraging for you. It will be something that will inspire you to rethink the way you engage in that relationship. And just commit your hearts along with me to be more intentional about how we do that. The New Testament contains at least a couple key teachings on parenting from Apostle Paul that are very similar. In two passages, he he gives almost identical teaching, but with slight nuances that are different. In Ephesians 6, 1-4, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Colossians 3:20 20 to 21 says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, I want to start by saying, Every family is very different. Every family looks different. Every family faces different challenges, has a different story. Every family has scars and stains and secrets. My family is definitely no exception. But as imperfect and clumsy as every family is, as different as every family is, this is how I want to invite you to receive this teaching. First, remember that these passages were not written directly to you and your specific family. Because it may be hard in your family situation to read these words or hear these words and translate them directly. I think about people who who have to grow up under parents that are difficult and find that these strong declarations to obey your parents and everything are such a challenge. So let's begin this way. Remember that this was not written specifically to just your family. But it was written to the people of God to describe God's ideal design for the flourishing of families and for the transmission of faith and the kingdom from one generation to the next. We have all done it imperfectly. We all will do it imperfectly. But without a blueprint, we won't know what good looks like. We will only know that something is not right, we don't feel good, but this is meant to serve for us as the ideal to which we aspire out of the clumsiness and mess of each of our own unique individual families. And so that's the way I hope to share the message, that's the way I invite you to receive it, is that we are aspiring together to bring our families more in alignment with this beautiful picture which God has given. Because if this goes well, the result is truly beautiful and worthy of praise. It's interesting that in these two passages, the word children translates to Greek word tekna, which doesn't mean little children. So often when you think the word children, you think of little kids, but this is the word offspring. It's a more general term, which then applies throughout life because no matter what age you are, you will always be someone's kid. And so this is a teaching for the whole of our lives. When it says children, it is for everyone in this room and the way that we relate to those above us. And then when it says fathers, it's also very interesting that, that Latin and Greek work a little bit like, um, like the, uh, the Spanish language. That If you ever took Spanish, how many of you took high school Spanish? So you know that padre means father, but padres means parents. And so legitimately, and we're not 100% sure, but legitimately the words fathers could refer to all fathers, or it could refer to parents. And there are examples where that same word is translated fathers or parents in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.23 is one good example of that. And so I bring that up to say that this is more of an inclusive teaching than you might realize. That every one of us, Owe some matter of, manner of honor to our parents, and we have to fight hard out of respect for the Lord to seek to honor our parents where we can legitimately do so. No matter what age we are, even if it's just the memory of our parents, we need to work hard to honor God in this. And then if we are parents, we have a holy, sacred responsibility and privilege to pass along the best of what God's poured into us. To our children. And this applies not only to fathers, but to mothers as well. It is both parents' honor and privilege to play this role in the lives of our children. So if you're a child, I want to encourage you to do your best to honor your parents. Not because they always deserve it, but because it honors God when we try. And because every parent I know, myself included, out of the broken mess of our lives, is doing the best we know how. This is what we can do. And I want to encourage you, if you are a child currently, and you see yourself as a minor or dependent person, to not just evaluate your parents' performance, but to pray for them. It occurred to me how often parents pray for children, but how rarely I hear that children pray for their parents. And I'm not saying that to judge anyone. When I was a teenager, I can't recall one time praying for my parents. (laughs) Honestly, I was in youth group, and we prayed for everything else. I prayed for my friends all the time. I prayed for myself like a 1,000%. And I can't remember one single time I said, God, would you just help my parents? I evaluated them a lot. I responded and reacted to them a lot. But I don't remember asking God to help them. And I wonder if this is a good word for those who are currently children, if it might deeply affect your relationship with your parents, if you committed yourself to pray for them, and not just about them, God, why why them? What they did to me, but you say, God, they're, they're messed up too, just like me. They're doing the best they can. Will you help them do better? <laughs> Will you strengthen them? Will you just affirm them and let them know that they're doing okay? There's so much in these passages, but I want to give you two quick shots, two things that I think are a wonderful gift that parents can give their children. And I know that there's a whole other half of that equation, but parent to the child is the side of the equation I happen to be on right now. And so I really want to offer that, especially to those who are bearing the burden and the challenge of parenting today. And the first is that we have this great opportunity to give away the gift of our our example. Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-7 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The word of God was really central to the Jewish people. And they were commanded at every possible opportunity to dwell on the word of God, to shape their lives around it. But also then, and this is one thing that I think maybe Pastor Frank is secretly an ancient Israelite because he always says the same thing. Don't just hold it for yourself. Pass it on to someone else. Don't be selfish. Don't be the Dead Sea. Be the Jordan River. Transmit what God gives you. I love that about Pastor Frank. He's always saying, don't just receive Give away. Pass it on. This is the nature of the way the Jewish people regarded the word of God. It was central to life, and so they spoke very often in their homes about what God's word said. I think most Christian parents do the very best we can to follow that. To try as as best we can to bring our kids to church where others will teach them, and then at home, whenever it is relevant, we try to bring in Christian biblical moral principles to help shape the ideas and the mindset of our children. We don't do it perfectly, but I think most Christian parents do the best that they are able to do at any moment. When our children are younger, those efforts are usually pretty fruitful. But I've noticed, having raised four kids to adulthood, that as they get older, the faith that they were trained up in through words when they were growing up doesn't hold as much ballast as it used to. Because as kids become more mature and discerning, they're not just asking what the words are, but they wanna know if the words have meaning in the real world. Are we being indoctrinated and brainwashed or are we being presented with something that is living and real? Is this the religion I'm supposed to grow up with and check off on the census form? Or is this kingdom of God business something true in the universe? Is there really such a thing as God and does he have good news and does he change human beings? And the truth is, if we've been the same people the whole time they've known us and in our own failings and weaknesses and struggles, we have never seen breakthrough, it it causes them to begin to question, is any of it real? because we read all these things in scripture, but it doesn't feel like it is part of the culture of the home in which we live. I've noticed that as kids get older, they're scrutinizing more, they're asking questions, and often the pushback makes us as parents, I'm putting myself right there, makes you defensive, it makes you kind of irritable, like, hey, you didn't used to ask these questions before, just sit down and read your thing and leave me alone. I have all the answers. I don't have to defend the faith to you. Just do what you're told. But it begins to wear away at the heart of a child who is becoming an adult. Unsurprisingly, 70%, according to several studies, 70% of evangelical youth leave the faith and the church after they graduate high school. Two-thirds of them, after a hiatus, return because they realize life without faith is actually really hard, but they're hoping they can find something real when they do return. I was so grateful to see the video about the RISE conference, to hear the testimonies this morning, to hear the report from some of the kids who went, and i got to tell you, I think the next generation is rightly one of the highest priorities at our church. We are doing lots of things to guarantee that it will remain so. And so as a church, we stand together committed to the next generation, to our kids, that we will do the very best we can to lead them to Jesus. But I just need to remind all of us together, we have to remember this. The primary place where people meet the kingdom of God and where discipleship happens is not at church. It is in our homes. That is a place where they make sense of what they're hearing at church and decide whether it's real or it's a story that they're being told. It's noteworthy that in the Old Testament the word of God was words spoken or written, but it was words. Sometimes it was phenomenal deeds, miracles, but most of the time the word of God was words. But as we are introduced to Jesus in John 1:14, a profound statement is made that the word became flesh And dwelt among us. What a powerful lesson that is for us because the word of God had been among human beings for many, many centuries before Jesus. But in Jesus now, the nature and character and the truth of God and his working becomes infinitely more relatable and real to us because now the living infinite God is encased in a form we understand. Through the incarnation, Jesus accomplished a great deal, but one of the things he really did for us is he brought the kingdom of God to a real place and helped us connect to it. He made the kingdom accessible through his flesh and blood. And this is one of the great things that we as parents have the privilege of emulating is that we don't just speak about God, but we have the opportunity to incarnate that God, his word and his kingdom in the way that we live in the privacy of our homes. We can make the gospel real by embodying this faith, which we say is so important to us. It will never go perfectly because there's bad days all the time. And some days I wake up in the morning not really in the mood to be at my best. (laughs) Just want to run from the world and medicate myself. But when we are in a good place and we accept this challenge, something powerful happens for those around us. These words become flesh through us. In the end, I think that is one of the great gifts that parents can give their children is that it's not a word that's just good for you, it's a word that is changing me. A parent who scolds their children to forgive their siblings and lives every day in unforgiveness, cannot pass on a heart of forgiveness to the next generation. It's hard because as that child grows older, they will discern there's words and then there's words. Titus 2.7 encourages us, you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. This is a word to a young preacher about how to impart real faith to his congregation, but it's just as relevant in the context of the home. That it is the faith embodied and lived out that creates the greatest compelling argument in favor of the gospel. That the strongest evidence that the God of the Bible is real and that the gospel is true is the life of a person who fully embraces it and is being changed by it. We're not talking about moral living as performance art or teaching tool where we're very careful to, to monitor how we appear to others. It is a life genuinely being made new, transformed. Where before I was always so hair-trigger angry, but somehow in walking with Jesus, that natural anger is beginning to change. It's not me just learning to control my emotions better. It's that somehow some knot inside of me was supernaturally untied by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. When children see their parents being made new by the power of the gospel in them, when there's genuine courage to face their own fears and willingness to try new things, generosity that is reckless, welcoming to those outside when there's all these things, graciousness, self-control, and it's not performance art, but it's real change. Something powerful happens in the heart of that child as they hear the words of the kingdom proclaimed. Paul warns parents not to exasperate their children, Here's what he means by that. Other translations have it embitter or provoke. It's, it's this. If you have actions without the words, you can still manage to be a blessing, right? I am forgiving you without talking about reciting Bible verses on forgiveness, but I'm forgiving you, or I'm being kind to you, or I'm welcoming you. Actions without words can still be a blessing, but words without actions create a different reaction, doesn't it? When someone keeps. Sending you text messages of Bible verses that you don't see in their own life. Right? His mercies are new every day. Joy comes in the morning. And that person is always like, you're like, ah something, it creates dissonance, doesn't it? It's like they're words, but I'm dying to know, do those words affect you? You, the sender, not me, the receiver. Are they changing you in a genuine way, not as discipline and effort but supernaturally, is God and his word transforming you? Is the Holy Spirit in you making you more alive than dad knew where things were old? I don't say that to create guilt. I'm asking as an honest question, like because if, if we don't show our kids that, then the words we keep saying create exasperation, a dissonance that creates distress in their spirit, You know, my parents were not perfect people. I I don't ever want to give that impression, but the one thing my brother and I can both say with honesty is that their faith was not moral performance art. It felt real and authentic as I was growing up watching them. They displayed affection towards us and towards each other openly. Not because it was culturally comfortable, but because they really believed that the, the love of God Freeze us to do that. My father kissed me goodnight every day until I graduated high school. And then I went off to college and when I came home, I tried to kiss him goodnight, it just felt weird, so I don't, I don't do it anymore. But, you know, it was like, that's not an that's not usual experience growing up, so I'm really grateful for that heritage. I watched my parents be very generous to other people, sometimes to us, but very often to other people. And, you know, kids never have any real idea about their parents' finances. But I had this interesting experience six years ago. My father uh, was closing up his medical practice. He had stored all his, his financial records in the basement of his clinic. And so he had box upon box that he needed to get rid of, and it was too cheap to hire one of those giant disposal companies. And so he gave them all to me and said, why don't you dispose these for me? And I went through two jumbo Um, commercial-powered or industrial-strength paper shredders before I realized this is not going to (laughs) work. So I just started burning them in a fire pit. (laughs) I made this fire pit, and I just started throwing the papers in. And about three boxes in, I started looking at some of these, and they were my father's tax returns and all his receipts. And it was staggering to see numerically, objectively, in hard numbers what his generosity looked like. And it took my breath away. Maybe a little bitter because I could have had a more luxurious childhood, (laughs) but I didn't realize how much my dad earned and how much he gave away. And that, I I think I I had received it because I find that there's a natural comfort with doing that myself, but I hadn't realized the scale of it until I had a chance to do that. And I realized what a gift it was to me that I didn't learn generosity from someone who told me about generosity, but practiced it because God was changing the way he related to money. I'm grateful that my parents did very little to stand in the way of my accepting the powerful words of the kingdom of God. And when my brother and I both committed the cardinal Asian sin, and I stepped away from a PhD and he stepped away from an MD to become ministers. They rejoiced. In fact, they cross examined us, not because they didn't want us to do it, but because they wanted to make sure we were worthy of ministry. <laughs> They're like, don't go messing around with the church. Ruin a, a laboratory or a hospital, but don't ruin the church. And they, they cross examined us and then they blessed us and rejoiced. Now, this message is not about my parents, but I'm saying I am the recipient of a heritage of a faith that felt and appeared to a child's eye to be authentic and real. And it has deeply marked my life and the way that I respond to God. And I think it is our privilege and honor as parents to give that gift to our children. The, the good news is you can't fake it or effort your way through it. It's exhausting to pretend, but the good news is if we open our hearts fully to God and are ready to let him change us and we'll put down our pride, he will change us because he delights in doing it. That anger and bitterness and unforgiveness you've been holding onto for so long, he will take it from you in an instant if you will let it go. You don't have to carry it around. Those addictions can go away. That hair-trigger temper can be changed if we will open our hearts to the living God. He will change us. And that genuine change happening in our own lives adds such force to the words of the kingdom that the next generation will hear that we don't have to be the ones who speak all those words. Even when they hear it from others, they will go home and say, that's right, it's real, because I know it from my parents. Life is messy. You're not going to go home today and become the perfect Christian parent. I won't. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. We don't have to shake that vigorously. <laughs> but even if we make just one incremental change in opening our hearts towards God, ask him to do that work in us. You'd be amazed at the fruit that is born. Let me give you a second and final gift that we give our kids. It's the gift of encouragement. Before you jump to conclusions about what that means, let me unpack it a little bit. And we don't need to stretch our imagination too far to list all the ways that children exasperate their parents, right? How do kids exasperate their parents? They make us say the same thing like 80 times, right? make sure you do this. Yeah, I know, I know. So there's plenty of ways we can name. It's not like it's kind of pervasive in the culture, um, how kids exasperate their parents. But as I prepared for the sermon, I began compiling a list of ways that parents exasperate their kids, because that's the prohibition given in these scriptures, right? Parents don't exasperate your children. How do parents exasperate their children? I thought of some of my own and I came across many lists from commentators that that highlight the way that parents create dissonance and distress in the spirit of their children. Uh, here are a few, just, just quickly. One is comparing them to siblings and other kids. A- any of you ever had that experience? Well, Jimmy down the street never does that, right? Your your brother is so perfect. And you're like, ugh devaluing their sense of worth, saying little things that constantly point out the flaws and rarely the good things, and just picking away, picking away, devaluing their sense of worth. Sometimes it's just neglect or failing to show affection. I love you. I don't have to say it. But it's like they desperately need to receive expressions of love and not just the idea of love. Sometimes it's excessive discipline or criticism. Sometimes it's being inconsistent with our standards or being hypocritical that what is good for them is not the same rule that applies to us. Sometimes it's setting unrealistic goals or standards for perfection and creating an almost neurotic response of performance-orientedness in our children. Sometimes it's just being unavailable or inattentive That every time they reach out for you, you're busy doing something else. There are many ways parents create this kind of dissonance and distress in the hearts of their children. And as we recognize these things, we realize how much of those things is repaired through the transformation of the gospel. As God makes an adult new, a lot of those things are addressed. In Colossians 3.21, Paul further adds that when we exasperate our children, the result is they lose heart. They lose heart. It's a very interesting word. Most other translations render that discouraged. They become discouraged. It paints a picture of deflation, like someone who's defeated the, the you know, when you say my get up and go, got up and went, you know, like this, the will to keep going, the ambition to drive kind of leaks out of that person. And every motivation has to be supplied externally because somehow along the way inside, they just don't care anymore. They become existentially apathetic. That's the picture being painted by the word Discouraged. Or lose heart is you'll have to give that person CPR and life support forever because somewhere along the way that exasperation pulled the air out of them. Now, not all failings in the life of a child is attributable to the parents. So don't, don't don't overdo it and ascribe to yourself blame for everything. Kids are a mess just like we're a mess. Okay, I mean every person will stand before God and give an account. But as far as we are able, we should endeavor not to be the source of such a thing in the life of the kids we love. That we should not be the reason that they are losing heart or feeling discouraged. And that deflation can follow them well into adulthood. Here's the helpful way that I've come to think about it. Um... This week with my parents, the past week, it was uh, interesting how many things they said that I still hear in my head. Any of you guys have, um, have that experience of you hear the echo of your parents' voice in your head? I think there's no question whether or not children hear their parents' voice in their memories maybe for the rest of their lives. That's not an if. It's a, it's a question of when. It's not whether they hear your voice. It's when they hear your voice. What triggers them remembering your voice? That has been so convicting for me to think about this week. When will our children in adulthood hear the echo of our voice? Will it be our voice lifting them up when they've fallen or feel like giving up? Will it be our voice inspiring them to aim for better when they're willing to take shortcuts or compromise their convictions and their beliefs? Is that the way they will hear our voice in their memory echo for the rest of their lives? Or will it be that our voice will join the chorus of condemnation when they've blown it? And they will hear us saying, I knew this was what was going to happen to you. I knew this was what you would become. Which voice are they going to hear? Because they will hear our voice forever. What we can actually have a say in is when that voice and that echo gets remembered. Now, please don't understand that to mean that the Bible discourages real discipline or standards. (laughs) If you look up Bible verses on parenting... 75% are about hit your kids, you know, like discipline them, give them standards. Don't let them get away with stuff. That's right. Don't, please don't misunderstand this to be a, and I'm saying don't hit your kids, but like you got to discipline kids. They need standards. That's a form of love to give them limits and boundaries, expectations. And please don't understand this to mean the Bible is affirming empty platitudes and affirmations. Oh, you're awesome. Everything you do is great. That's not helpful either. That will destroy a child. But what it is saying is use your voice knowing that every word you speak can potentially be the echo in that child's heart for a lifetime. Surrender your words to the living God and ask him to use your tongue, your words, your voice, to be a blessing and a source of strength in the life of your children so that when they leave your home and face a world that is ugly and unfair and cruel, when they realize that they also are ugly and unfair and cruel in their own flesh, just like we were, our voice will help lift them out of that because our voice was captured by the voice of God. Listen, parenting is so hard. One of my goals during the sabbatical is to reflect on myself and invite God to tell me the truth about me. Towards the end of my time before the sabbatical, many people were telling me their truth about me, and I was being convicted by a lot of it. But I needed to know what was really from the Lord. And one of the things I walked away with was a host of regrets about the way that I have fathered. I want to do better. I did the best I could. I never woke up thinking, I'm going to be a cruddy dad today. I can't wait get my revenge on the... I've never felt that a day in my life. And yet, I was a pretty cruddy dad for a good number of days. Just because I'm also a person trying to walk my own life. And some days, life isn't great. But here's the good news. It is never too late to turn our hearts towards God. And even incremental turn towards God results in a massive turn of God towards us. Some of the greatest impacts my parents made on my life were after I graduated university in my adult years. If you're an empty nester, your kids have moved on, you're feeling discouraged like I've already lost all my chances, you have not. A life transformed by the living God is a powerful statement at any age. We are never too old to become fully the people of the living God. I encourage you not to give up the fight. No matter what your family looks like or where you are, turn your heart over to Jesus fully because what he will make of you is far more compelling than what we will make of ourselves. And the beauty is that when we do that, we don't lose our personhood. We don't lose our identity. We actually fulfill it. For the sake of the next generation, I invite all of you, along with me, to turn our hearts over to God and be truly changed by the power of the gospel. It's the greatest gift we can give our children. And if we leave them penniless, but give them the kingdom, we have done our jobs. There will be nothing to be ashamed of. Why don't we bow in prayer just for a moment? The risk and the pitfall of preaching any sermon is that I am one speaker, I have one message, but there are 200 individual stories that are receiving it. Each story will resonate with or be offended by a different piece of that story. There's no way to deliver a message that speaks to everyone exactly where they are. But here's the power, is that God, who is your good Father, the Holy Spirit, who is living and active, can speak to you in ways that a preacher never can. I have to speak in generalities because I have to speak to a whole room. But in these quiet moments after the sermon is finished, the Spirit of the living God can speak to each of us in our own context because He knows us and walks with us. The moments right after a sermon may be the most important at church on Sunday because that's when the preacher has stopped talking and now God is saying to you what he's wanting you to hear so can I invite you to open your heart lower your fences and invite the Living God to say to you what he wants to say to you and if you hear words of condemnation reject those they're not from God they're from your enemy but if you hear words of conviction, those are from your heavenly Father. He wants you to turn towards him. So let's just bow in this moment and open our hearts to God and then I'll pray for us and we'll sing. Together. God, family is really hard, but it's also really good. Whenever family as a subject comes up, Lord, we know that many of us are filled with a whole host of emotions. You are also in this room. Because of that, along with any heaviness or regret, hope and the power to be new So this is our prayer for each of us Lord forbid that we should live our lives performing for anyone just come and fill us and change us make us new no more performance art. no more posturing no more appearing to be anything make us new to the gospel of Jesus Christ We're tired of carrying all the heavy junk around. We're tired of having to work so hard to appear to be good people. Change us truly in the inner being. Take from us our burdens and our stubbornness and the things we think we need to hold on to that are killing us. And as we let go, bring about in each of us a lightness of being, a newness of spirit, not because people are the source of our hope, but because you have promised that you are worthy of our trust and our hope. We pin our hopes on you. God, come and renew, breathe a fresh wind of renewal in each family present in this room. Start with small things. But don't leave a single family out. Come and blow a fresh wind. And let disappointment and bitterness melt away in the face of genuine change. Real love happening in family after family. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.